Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and I'm sitting across the desk from Pastor Dr. David Murphy. As usual, uh, we are discussing topics and relating them to the biblical worldview. What does the Bible say about a specific topic? Before we get to the topic for the program this evening, Pastor, we have a question that came in via Uh, text message this last week. And the question is, does God love Satan? Um, That's a very peculiar question. Um, All I would say that we don't want to go beyond Scripture. There's no biblical passage anywhere that uh, expresses God's love for Satan. So I don't want to speculate. However, I would say this. If by love we mean the biblical definition of love, that love is basically uh, a self-sacrificing concern that uh, works in the interests of its object, if that is the definition of love as the Bible gives it, agape love, clearly that has no reference to Satan. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever indicate that God has his ultimate welfare uh, as his primary object. He is the object of divine wrath. He is the implacable enemy of God. And uh, he is going to f- um, face the full wrath of God ultimately. So I don't think it can be proved uh, anywhere in Scripture that there's any indication that uh, God's love extends uh, to this evil satanic being. But how uh, can a loving God, how can a loving God not love someone or something? Well, the, the thing we need to understand that uh, we are pushing this attribute of God uh, love um, I think we are making a massive mistake because it's a lopsided presentation of the character of God the first primary characteristic that God revealed himself as as a God of holiness uh, you always find God as a God of light before he's a God of love that is the regulatory attribute of God and uh, I think that we hit and always must have the balance uh, God first revealed himself as a God of holiness then he reveals himself as a God of love these are not uh, two attributes at war with each, with each other. But uh, God's love can be spurned. And because God's love can be spurned, uh, we can face divine wrath. And I think this is exactly what has happened in the case of Satan. He is um, in his rebellion. Uh, the Bible talks about that in the book of uh, Isaiah. Uh, clearly, uh, his rebellion was designed uh, to dethrone God. And as a result, uh, he was cast out of heaven. And he has no opportunity for repentance. Uh, There's no gospel for him. And all he awaits uh, clearly from the scriptures is wrath. So God's love does not extend to him. Clearly when he was first created, uh, God loves all his creatures. 
But just like man can spurn God's grace, grace and come under God's wrath, I think a similar parallel could be drawn between um, uh, Satan as well. I was doing a little reading this afternoon, and I found it very interesting that in the Bible, for every one time that the Bible speaks about God's love, mm-hmm. there's at least two instances where the Bible is talking about God's holiness. Yeah. I think, as I said, I really feel that the, the, in, in the desire to win men and to ingratiate uh, God into the favor of man, we have actually put a real overemphasis on this matter to the point where even the unsafe person uh, no longer feels any great need of repentance and faith and trust in Christ. Uh, he pretty much throws it in your face that God is love. How can a God of love uh, pour wrath on me? So I think the church has to be very, very careful. We must preach the holiness of God and bring man to a point where he sees his need of sin, uh, repentance because of his sin. And then having brought him to that level of conviction through the Holy Spirit and the Word, then we introduce him to God's love. I think that's the biblical model. I've said this in our church, and it's worth saying on the radio as well. If you go through any of the gospel messages in the book of Acts or even when our Lord was on earth, uh, you never once find that when they went around, they went preaching the love of God. They always preached repentance and the fact that man's accountable before God, and then they introduce him to Christ. But never this thing that we're doing uh, in terms of so elevating this concept of love that the holiness of God is totally forgotten. I think it's a gross mistake uh, on, on the part of the church. You're listening to That's Truth. We're broadcasting from the studios of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse on the very wet island of Antigua. We're thankful for the rain that the Lord has sent to the Eastern Caribbean over the last week. I'm glad that you have taken the time to listen during your busy schedule, take time out of your busy schedule to join our conversation, listen in on our conversation here on That's Truth. Again, this is an interactive program, and we would love for you to interact with us. This evening, we're continuing the topic of cults and new religions. In the last couple of weeks, we've been discussing the Jehovah's Witness movement and comparing their history and their teachings to the Bible. In this episode, we'll be discussing the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, pastors, some would say that the SDA Church or the Seventh-day Adventist Church should not be classified as a cult. So why are we even taking the time to discuss it as part of this series that we're doing here on That's Truth? Well, even though some of the leading um, Christian apologists, especially Dr. Walter Martin, also Donald J. Barnhouse, and um, um, E. Schuller English, uh, those are solid fundamentalists who did an investigation into the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And having um, studied the uh, question on doctrine that they came out with in 1957, uh, they came to the conclusion that the SDA uh, substantially holds to some, most of the basic fundamental doctrines of the Bible. For example, they believe in the infallibility of the Scriptures, they hold to the Trinity, they support the full deity of Christ. Uh, they accept the creation, the incarnation of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, they speak of the necessity of the regeneration. They believe in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. And they also believe in Christ's second return. So they hold to the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, but there are some deviant doctrines that are contrary uh, to what the church has held the Orthodox uh, Church has held for, for, for centuries. For example, they have some peculiar doctrines that um, the soul sleeps when it's uh, after, the, after death, 
Um, they don't believe that man has a soul um, separate from the body. Uh, there's also the idea that um, what is called the investigative judgment. Uh, they have a different concept of the atonement. The atonement was not fully completed at the cross. Um, part of the work was done there, but then in 1984, um, 1944, 1844, sorry, that work continues and will finally be taken care of um, before our Lord returns. Uh, those are some peculiar doctrines. Also, um, they believe that uh, Michael the Archangel is Christ before Christ came to earth. They also believe that the scapegoat in the book of Leviticus is Satan, and that finally all sins will be put on him and he will suffer uh, annihilation ultimately. Uh, those are some of the areas that create some problems for believers because in some of the writings as well, uh, there's not some clarity uh, whether or not they were saying that the scapegoat vicariously carried the sins of the, um, of the believer uh, under the world. But then they clarified that saying as the instigator, he finally bears his sin and he goes to divine wrath. Uh, but a lot of their writings were not very clear, and that created a lot of questions, um, especially among fundamentalist Christians who felt that they had deviant uh, teachings on these matters. But they have since came out with um, a book called Questions on Doctrine that has dealt with these areas and specifically clarified what their position is. The other thing is, uh, at times it was wonder, uh, people wondered if they were legalists in the sense that um, do they believe in justification by faith only or do you have to be justified and keep the law? There was some uncertainty about that because you read some of their writings and it seemed as though they made the law such a big thing as though they brought the believer back under the bondage of the law. That led to um, the impression that they were cultic. And of course, the other big thing is the amount of devotion they give to Ellen G. White. I mean, she is the person they look for. She they look for for do, matters of doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a problem with that because the Bible is very clear in Timothy that a woman should not be given the role of authority over a man in respect to, to to these matters of doctrine. But yet, she is the premier person they look to in terms of doctrine and clarification of doctrine. If you look at any of their commentaries, uh, you'll find that at every footnote, it has to do with what she said. She is as though she's the final authority uh, to decide what doctrine to hold. That certainly is cultic. Wouldn't it also be problematic that they're looking to Ellen G. White, someone who lived in the 1800s, mm-hmm. uh, as additional revelation from God? Because wasn't the revelation from God, I mean, God's word, wasn't that already completed? Yeah, but that, that's the problem. That's part of the main problem. You had the scripture. But now she comes along, and she all, all she talks about basically is that the Lord showed her. She had this vision. Uh, she's actually ter- taken up to heaven at some, some times and shown in the the very uh, crucible there in the the um, the mercy seat. And she looks in there, and she sees the Ten Commandments, and she sees a halo around the Fourth Commandment. Uh, this has led um, Christians to believe that they are more looking towards her final word on a matter than the scriptures. Uh, the Bible is settled when the Bible is written, and it's, it's, it's complete, and it's sufficient. But suddenly she comes on the scene, and it seems as though the Bible is not sufficient. So her interpretations guide that church, and they depend on her interpretation as a settled matter because she is one that seemed to have had, the, they believe, had the prophetic gift. It was restored with her. 
and so they look to her as you look at Old Testament prophet, even though they say that they don't put her writings on par with Scripture. When you do look at the commentaries, uh, one wonders um, if there is not some ambivalence there in respect to this whole matter. So those matters have created concern for Christians. Um, um, so that has led to uh, even Dr. Martin makes it very clear in his book, Kingdom of Cults, that he's only putting them in there because they've got uh, certain cultic inclinations. He doesn't see them as a cult, but there are certain aspects to their teaching that seem to be cultic, but he doesn't classify them as a cult. You st- stated earlier on in your answer that they have some deviant doctrines that differ from what the Orthodox Church mm-hmm. uh, would have traditionally held. Is the problem that they differed from the traditional church or the problem that they differ from Scripture? Well, they differ from the Scripture. Okay. Uh, that, that's the whole issue. Um, I should make that, uh, that should have been clarified. Um, but again, you only understand why they've taken these positions. It is mainly because of the prophet Ellen G. White. Uh, most of their teaching of the investigative judgment, like out of that came soul sleep. See, you had to have out of that came annihilation. Yeah. Uh, these are things that followed as a result of this teaching of the investigative God, which is based on an inter- interpretational hoax. It, it is a travesty of interpretation, really, when you when you begin to look at it. But nonetheless, because they've taken this position, and you'll, I'll explain sometime during the program why they've taken this position. Out of that, have poured forth these kind of doctrines, uh, and this has created a dilemma for them. And uh, I don't think that um, they are prepared to alter their position because if you've held to this position for so long, now to change it, the whole kingdom begins to crumble. And uh, that is very, very difficult. I have to tell you, very, very difficult to, to change. Pastor, with this whole series on cults and new religions, are you just trying to tear down other churches and other movements in order to build yourself up? I hope that is not how the audience views this matter. Um, my main concern is always about truth. We we need to understand that not everybody believes uh, along with biblical truth. Um, everybody today is holding some, some biblical form, some biblical teaching. But what we need to understand is which is in line and more in harmony with the general tenor of Scripture. And there are fundamental doctrines that we need to uh, hold to that there's no salvation apart from these these doctrines. So it is important what we believe, and we need to clarify uh, how we differ from others in terms of we are totally biblicists. We hold completely to the Bible. We have no extra biblical source of authority. There's no man that tells anybody, at least in our, our movement within yeah. the Baptist circle, that no man is the final authority. The Bible is the final authority. Uh, but groups that are leaning to cultic doctrines, they always have some some source outside of Scripture that becomes the final authority. And I think this is also true of the SDA. You're listening to That's Truth, and you're listening to Pastor Dr. David Murphy explain what the Bible says about the Seventh-day Adventist Church and what they believe. We'll get in more detail in just a minute, but let me remind you, this is an interactive program. We would love for you to contact us. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, thank you, and we look forward to any questions that you may have. If you have a question, you can just put it in the comments. Also, if you are listening uh, via AM, FM, or online, 
Thank you for joining us. You can send your questions via WhatsApp or text to 268-782-1454. Again, WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. Or you can call and be put live on the air, 1-268-462-7420. Pastor, I think it would be very logical for us to start with the history of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. When and where did they start? Well, the Adventist movement as a church it really uh, first started with a guy called uh, William Miller. Um, William Miller was born in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and then his family moved in down to Lower Hampton in New York. And there he was converted and became part of the, the Christian church. He became a Baptist in, in 1816, and later on he became a licensed minister. Uh, during that period of time, in the um, first four decades of the 19th century, early 19th century, there was a revival about the second coming, the advent of Christ. It was not just in America, it was in Europe, it was in Africa, South Africa, etc. There was a, a tremendous movement about the, the second coming. It's like a, a doctrine that was just rediscovered. And Miller um, became very... Um, he was sold on the, the whole matter of the, the advent of Christ. And so he, for two years, he gave some serious study to the subject of the second coming. And he concluded after his study that the Lord would return in March 21st, 1843. Um, he got that basically from uh, using the book of Daniel chapter 14, uh, 8 verse 14, and um, where it talks about 2300 days. He, he turned that 2300 days when the temple would be cleansed to um, 2,300 years, and he said that that started from 457 B.C., which was the time stipulated in um, in, in uh, Daniel chapter 9, that when they going forth to rebuild Jerusalem, he used that date. So what he did, basically, he subtracted 457 from 2,300 years and came up with 1843. That's how he got 1843. So he said that the Lord would return in 1843. He would return to the earth. He would judge the earth, and he would cleanse the earth. That's what he taught. Um, I, I might say this, though. Okay, let, let me just... Um, when the Lord did not return um, in uh, 1843 in March, there was a great disappointment. By the way, by now, Miller had had about 15,000 followers because he was the one pushing this second return. The word Advent is the second coming. Okay. Miller was never Seventh-day Adventist, uh, but he was an Adventist in the sense that he pushed the second coming. That's what Adventist really is about. Then um, it was changed from uh, March 21st, 1843, then to March 21st, 1844. And then the Lord did not return then. And then uh, they came up with the idea of this seventh month, because seven in the calendar is always a number of completion, and that's the Jewish calendar. So they came up then to October 22nd. The Lord will return in 1844, and everybody was expecting the Lord to return in 1844. And then the great disappointment, which is called the great disappointment, he did not return in October 1844. And the movement was squashed. Miller... Um, left. What, what was the name of the movement at that point? The Adventist movement. Okay, it was not. It wasn't Seventh Day Adventist. It was the Adventist movement. Okay, uh, but he he um, he was honest about 
his evaluation. He discovered that he'd made some wrong calculations. He was an honest man. Nobody's ever charged Miller with deception. They always believe he's sincere, but sincerely wrong. And, and of course, Miller made the big mistake that most people make. The Lord said, you don't know the day, nor the hour. Yeah. He knew the day. He knew the, the, the exact year. So he made a mistake, and there's no reason for him. Foolheartedly, he set a date, and it proved to be a great disappointment. So he left the movement. And I would like to say that um, I mentioned that Miller was never part of the Seventh-day Adventist. He never embraced the Sabbath. He never embraced the idea that the soul sleeps. And he never embraced the idea of the uh, man would be annihilated and there's no hell. And he never accepted the investigative judgment. So he was never really a Seventh-day. He was an Adventist. So when that um, final disappointment came, um, the whole movement, he left the movement and everybody was tremendously disappointed. And then something happened that changed everything. While a guy called um, Hyron Edson is going across a, a, a cornfield with another guy called A.R.W. Crozier, he is in deep thought, and suddenly he gets some light, f- flash of lightning, as it were, in his mind, of truth, really. And he began to think about it, and he, he, he said, you know what, Miller was right. The Lord did return in October 22nd, uh, 1844, but he did not return to the earth. He returned to heaven, and he went into the sanctuary in heaven to do his final phase of ministry, which is investigative judgment. Okay, That is basically how the day was saved. Now, that would never have passed because Miller did not accept that, that explanation. He realized it was a cop-out. So in order to have that explanation, there had to be a whole new doctrine. Yes, correct. And this is where now Mrs. White comes in because she is telling them that she had a vision from the Lord and the Lord confirmed that what this guy said and what Crozier said was correct, that Jesus moved from the first compartment in heaven, the holy place, into the holy of Hales to complete his final investigative judgment. So what the Lord is doing currently in heaven is that he is examining the records of everybody that made a decision that was saved from the time of Adam until he returns to decide who is worthy of eternal life and who ought to be extinguished. See, That is what his ministry is from 1844 until he returns. When he's complete investigation in that investigation, then he returns. That is what the investigative judgment is all about. And that is what saved the day for uh, the Adventist movement. But then, um, out of the group, uh, there came three factions that came together to form the Seventh-day Adventist uh, movement. Three factions. One was the Hiram Edison faction that emphasized the sanctuary. The other faction was um, a guy called Joseph Bates uh, from New Hampshire, Washington, New Hampshire. He advocated the seventh day. And he got that, by the way, from Revelation chapter 14, where it talks about uh, uh, fear God and give God glory for his judgment has come. That's the investigative judgment has come. And then come out of her, my people. And then it it says, them that keep the commandments of the Lord. He associated that with their movement, and he emphasized, no, we must keep the law. So his arm now decided we must make the law, keeping the law and the Sabbath as part of the the, the movement. And the third part of it came from Ellen G. White and her group uh, from Portland, Maine, where they claimed that she had the prophetic gift. So you've got the investigative judgment, you've got the Sabbath, and now you've got 
the prophetic aspect of it that she has that prophetic gift. These are the three arms that came together, three three branches that came together in 1855 and uh, established headquarters in a place called Battle Creek in Michigan. And uh, Mrs. White would play the leading role in establishing what the doctrine was. And then the Seventh-day Adventist name was officially adopted in 1860. And then uh, the General Conference was formed in 1863, which is the ruling body of the organization. That basically is how Adventism started. But again, remember the key thing here is this uh, prophecy uh, that this uh, Miller made, 1833, then it was changed to 1844, and then that the idea that he was coming back to earth to cleanse the earth, then when they had this tremendous disappointment, Hiram comes on the scene, he says he'd gotten some light from the Lord, and the Lord, he discovered the Lord did not come back to earth to cleanse it, he went into the second sanctuary in heaven, the Holy of Holies, and he began his investigation. And that would have fallen to pieces, except Ellen G. White came along and said, yes, the Lord has revealed to me that this is exactly what happened, and she endorsed that doctrine, and that's how Adventism started. Remove Ellen G. White, remove Hiram, and you have no Adventist uh, system. Remove the investigative judgment, and, and the Seventh-day Adventist totally collapses. So is it safe to say that the Seventh-day Adventist movement, the Seventh-day Adventist church was founded based upon confusion caused by reading into Scripture and adding to Scripture, whether it be adding a specific date that Christ was going to return, whether it be adding the investigative doctrine, that it was adding to Scripture that led to this yeah. movement? Yeah, well said. It's an interpretative error. Okay. It is a, a misinterpretation of a passage that had nothing, by the way, to do with the cleansing of the temple in heaven. Uh, it has to do, if you read the passage very carefully in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 8, it has to do with when Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, part of the fourth, one of the branches of the Greek Roman Empire when it went into decline, um, he led the Seleucid part of the empire and he invaded Israel. He's the one that sacrificed a sow in the temple and mm-hmm. put the, the, the image of Zeus of, of uh, yeah, Zeus in, in, the, in the temple itself. And then uh, Judas Maccabeus, you've probably heard about that in the book of Maccabees yeah. 1 and 2. He's the one that really uh, went against um, uh, the, um, Antiochus Epiphanes and actually cleansed the temple. And there's a historical date when the temple is actually cleansed. That is the historical thing. But they've taken that. And again, in the frenzy of the Advent movement, the Lord is returning back. Everybody was dating. Not only just Miller. Everybody was dating. They became part of it. But is that interpretational error that is the basis of the Seventh-day Adventist system today? You are mentioning that if you pull uh, any one of these three key figures out of their historical uh, records, that the movement uh, declines or the movement falls apart. Is that true of true Christianity? Is there any one man in true Christianity, apart from Jesus Christ, that is so crucial to the movement of Christianity that if you removed him, Christianity falls apart? Well, the only person who's the descendant of Christianity is Christ. I don't have any other individual. Uh, but again, you've got Within Christianity, you've got, for example, you take the, the, the Catholic Church. To them, the, the Pope is infallible. Whatever he says, and he speaks ex cathedra in his role as the vicar of Christ, whatever he says is infallible. 
Now, the Protestant, uh, which we are out of, the, the Baptist movement and the Methodists and all the others and the Lutheran, etc., and the Presbyterian that came out of that, that particular movement, um, um, Orthodox Christianity, uh, what we would say to be biblical Christianity, has no infallible pope. We have an infallible word, an infallible Bible, and the Bible is the final authority for the, the believer. Um, so I don't think that um, I can th refer to, in, uh, would outside of the Catholic Church, um, which seems to believe that they're the only true church, everybody got to come back, you know, we're supposed to be the lost daughters and sisters, we've got to come back under the umbrella. And I think that the, 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 um, the, the Pope is actually trying to bring all religions under the umbrella of the Catholic Church. Um, he would go into the Hindu temple and worship in the Hindu temple, uh, visit the Buddhist temple. The whole idea that you come under this one supreme umbrella, uh, I think that is where we're headed in the ecumenical movement, and the Bible talks about that in the book of Revelation. But for a believer, a true, genuine believer who holds the scripture, there is no other authority other than scripture, and Christ is a central and figure for the believer. Pastor, we have a question that just came in from Antigua. Do Ellen G. White's visions contradict Scripture, or do they add to Scripture? I think they do both, uh, because you take the investigative judgment. Anybody that studies uh, Daniel chapter 8 and um, really do a good study on it will realize it has nothing to do with any, there's no sanctuary in heaven. As a matter of fact, the, the, the great myth of the Seventh-day Adventist movement is that the tabernacle on earth, there's a replica of that in heaven. That's the greatest myth that you'll ever, never think. Uh, as a matter of fact, the Bible makes it very clear that Christ is not made a high priest after the order of the Aaronic priest, uh, priesthood. His priesthood is completely different. The Holy of Holies in, the, in heaven is where Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. There's no little box where he is, a little compartment where he is. How can, how can a compartment contain God? Right? I mean, even the Bible says that. But, the, the whole thing there is that what we have had during the ironic era, that is a replica of that in heaven, and everything that was done in the ironic uh, priesthood is now being done in heaven. So they compare uh, the Day of Atonement. They, they feel that the, the investigative judgment, just like the high priest went from one compartment into the other, they believe that when our Lord went to heaven, he went into the first compartment. And then in, in 1848, he went into the second compartment to cleanse it. See, So they're, they're relating the two of them, and it's just an interpretational error. Uh, it makes absolutely no sense. Christ knows everything. He's God. Why would he have to spend from 19, 1844 until he returns to find out who goes to heaven and who should be annihilated? So now we're 160 years? <laughs> that makes absolute no sense. I don't think they've really thought this thing through, right? Mm -hmm. But again, once you've latched on to a matter and you've made that the core of your doctrine, to surrender that is to call the whole edifice to crumble. And, and that is the great um, reason why they keep holding to this, this whole matter again and again. And many, by the way, have left the movement out of this same investigative judgment. Um, but there are two groups in the Seventh-day Adventist movement. There's evangelical Seventh-day Adventist movement that's moving away from this um, investigative judgment. And then there's the traditional Seventh-day Adventist, which is the one where the, the white family, the LNG white family, control basically this part of it. Uh, so 
it, it's just an interpretation error that was made and build a whole foundation around it. And then when it begins to crumble, when you begin to examine it under scripture, you now have to find all kinds of specious reasons to, to hold on to it. And um, I think that's what's happened to the SDA. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add in relation to the the history of the movement before we look specifically at LNG White? Um, I don't have anything um, I can think specifically. I think we'll come to some of the issues as we, we, we go on. Uh, one other thing I would like to say is that Seventh-day Adventists are what you call Armenians. And what I mean by Armenians, they have a, um, a distinctive view on salvation. They do believe that um, you receive salvation as a free gift from God. There's no doubt about that. You read their writings and you read the, uh, the questions on doctrine. They make that very, very clear. There's only one way you can be saved, saved through Jesus Christ by faith, uh, through grace. But having received the gift... Of, of eternal life, they believe that the believer is responsible for maintaining the duration of that gift. So really, in truth and fact, it is almost adding an element of effort to salvation. So you're saved by grace, but then you're you kept, work. Kept, pretty much, that's okay. it. Because you can lose your salvation if you, if you disobey the law. That's why a lot of Saturday Adventists might be baptized five, six, seven, or eight times, because if you go away and get involved in sin, you're lost again. So you've got to get saved again. And that's what an Armenian believes. They don't believe that a person is eternally saved. And uh, that is why they have this, this uh, uncertainty. They don't, I don't think the Seventh-day Adventist can actually say, I know I'm saved. You will not know you're saved until the investigative judgment is complete. And that is the uncertainty that, that reigns within the Adventist movement. So that is why you have to keep the law. You've got to keep the, uh, the Sabbath. Because if you break the Sabbath, you might lose your salvation. That is the, the drift of the Adventist movement. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.05. You're listening to That's Truth. And if you would like to ask Pastor Murphy a question, you can do that one of two ways. You can either call and be put live on the air. And the phone number for that is 1-268-462-7420. Again, call and be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Or you can send your question via WhatsApp or text to the following number, 268-782-1454. Again, WhatsApp or text, 268-782-1454. And, Pastor, we have a WhatsApp message that has come in from Anguilla. Thank you to the listener who sent it. The question is, or the message is, good night. The SDAs hold to the Sabbath more than Easter. Shouldn't Easter mean more to us as Christians than the Sabbath? Well, you've got to understand the, the Seventh-day Adventist movement again. Um, this is the reason why the Sabbath is so vitally important. Again, it goes back to Mrs. White. Uh, when uh, Crozier, um, uh, Bates, sorry, when Bates pushed the idea that uh, using Revelation chapter 14, that one of the marks of the end-time church, God is calling out a group. And judgment has begun, he's calling a group now. And one of the key characters is that they keep the commandments of God. So he pushed the idea that we had to keep the commandments, the Ten Commandments. But again, to get that endorsed now, you have to have some kind of a prophetic voice that would say, you know, because remember that Ellen G. White was a Methodist before okay. she became a, a Christian, I mean, before she uh, joined the Seventh-day Adventist movement. 
And if you know Methodist theology, basically, uh, they don't believe in the Sabbath. They believe in keeping Sunday. So what happened now? She has she gets this vision. She goes up and she takes it to heaven and she sees the she sees the uh, the temple. She goes in there. She sees the mercy seat. She opens the mercy seat. She sees the Ten Commandments. And then, lo and behold, around the Fourth Commandment, there's a whole, whole halo. So, bam, we must keep the Sabbath. So, you've got to understand that once you have a a, a, a a person you believe who has got the prophetic gift, and they are confirming that this is what you should hold to, it's very difficult for them now to move away from that particular bit because you've already endorsed her as a true prophet. right? And they believe that the... The prophetic gift that is talked about in um, Corinthians chapter 12, that that was restored in the energy way. So really, they have a real prophet, a real modern-day prophet, like the Old Testament had prophets. They got their old... That's why they believe that they're the final church with a final message for this closing generation to bring back some unique doctrines that the church had lost sight of. One of those is keep the Sabbath. Would it just be Ellen G. White that was given that gift in this time period, or the gift was reinstituted to multiple people? Well, they believe that they, they believe that she has the gift. Okay. As a matter of fact, they insist that you need to have an ongoing voice uh, from God. Uh, exactly. My question is. Uh, so now she's dead. Do we have another prophet come from the from the Seventh Day Adventist? Because if you must have this ongoing witness and testimony, uh, do we need another prophet now that she's gone? But that is substantially why they put more emphasis on the Sabbath than they would put on Easter. We celebrate Easter because it's the Lord's uh, death, right? That's why we celebrate Easter. Uh, they wouldn't push that. They would push more the Sabbath. Uh, so. While as a Christian church, we would we would push the resurrection of Christ and the death of Christ, there are more uh, emphasis because they have a prophetic voice saying that this is what we should do. So that's why they push the, the Sabbath. And right as you were talking about the prophecy, we had a listener on Facebook Live that asked a question right along those lines, but I believe you already answered it. Uh, so... The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.09. Pastor, we're talking about Ellen G. White. Let's talk more specifically about her. What are some key facts that we need to understand in order to understand the Seventh-day Adventist movement as a whole? Well, what I would uh, think is very important is to... Um, let me just say a few things about her that would give you an idea of, of um, where we think the problem lies with Ellen G. White. There's no question that she was a sincere woman. Nobody's ever disputed the fact that she was sincere. Uh, nobody disputed the fact that she really believed that she had visions and she had all of these experiences. Nobody's ever questioned that. The question is really, were they really realistic or was just an, um, um, an exercise in ecstasy or uh, was she having delusions, whatever it is? The doctors, three medical uh, Seventh-day Adventist doctors, have indicated, quite frankly, that she was epileptic and that she did have uh, problems. And that problem stand that when she was nine years old, uh, she was struck with a stone that not only broke her nose, but also fractured her to the point where she was in, uh, for three weeks, she was almost virtually in a coma. Uh, it's believed that out of that is what has led her to have these grandiose visions, etc., etc. And these are not doctors outside the Seventh-day Adventists. These are doctors who knew her, who attributed her um, her visions and her um, um, experiences to a, a, a nervous mental brain problem. That's what they attributed it to. 
But she was saved um, at about 13 within the Methodist Church, and she she give, talks about that experience. Uh, but she, um, her family was expelled from the Methodist Church because they held to the imminent return of Christ. Really? Yeah, because during those days, uh, most most of those churches were amillennialists. Okay. And uh, postmillennialists. Remember, premillennialism is, is very a recent thing. To be very honest, a rediscovery in terms that the Lord returns. So sh- they were expelled because uh, by now they were influenced by the Adventist movement, which is about the Lord's return. And so when they were expelled, she joined the um, the Adventist Adventist Church and became part of, of that particular particular group. So um, basically, at age seventeen, she started having these visions. And uh, she gathered, um, she, because of these visions, she would write down. Uh, these visions became the counsel and the testimonies. And that's why the Adventists believe now that she was a prophet because she had these visions and she would write. So all of her writings, she wrote over 40 books. All of her writings are counsel and testimonies uh, to the Adventist church in matters of, of doctrine and practice. So she is a leading figure in that uh, regard. I want to read a, 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 um, something that one of the Adventists said, Dr. Froome, who is a leading Seventh-day Adventist um, writer. Uh, this is what he said about her. <clears throat> she rebelled against the dismal prospect resulting from an early in- accident and attendant inv- inv- uh, invalidism. You know, she was almost an invalid uh, as a result of the... Uh, and she, she had problems dealing with that, so she has a lot, had a lot of emotional problems as well. And they believe that is that kind of a mindset that uh, the fact that she was injured mentally and the emotional trauma of being a uh, somewhat semi-invalid uh, led her uh, to pursue this closeness with God, etc., etc., and... Uh, out of that came a lot of these visions, etc., etc. But they do believe that the main reason for her visions was the mental brain damage that was done when she was struck by the stone and was in a coma almost for three weeks. But they would hold that she was a prophet. Yeah. Okay. They hold that she's a prophet. Uh, there's no because again she she would write about an angel showing her this, God showing her that, she being taken to heaven, everything that she writes. Um, she uh, says that she, you know, she's not writing this of her own. The Lord is showing this to her, leading her uh, in these matters. Uh, the biggest problem with that, of course, is that she's the biggest plagiarist that maybe that has ever, religious plagiarists have ever known. Because uh, when they started investigating her books, and uh, they discovered that what she was saying she got from God, these visions and these dreams and and, and so on, discovered that these were taken verbatim from other sources and never given credit. She's just claiming that God has shown the when she's actually copying what other people have written. There's a book that I would recommend to the public. Uh, it's called The White Lie. You can go online and get the white by a guy called McCray. Uh, that book set forth out of her writings. On one column, they've got what she wrote. On the other column, they've got it where she got it from. So clearly... She was dissembling when she was saying she was getting these things from God because she was borrowing the ideas, the actual words, and claiming that God had revealed these things to her. Pastor, we have a question that just came in from Antigua. Would reading Ellen G. White's books affect you? 
I, I don't know, because I personally have never read any of her books, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. I do have in my library, somebody left it there called The, uh, the Great Controversy. It's actually in my library, but I've never actually read it. Uh, in my um, studying of the, for the movement and getting some quotations, she had a way with words, there's no question about that. She was very, very flowery, very, very ornate in how she wrote. And she seemed to be able to put words together in a way that um, is appealing to anybody that would read it. And there's no question that she wrote, there are some things that the way she wrote it, that she had an understanding of the scriptures. Nobody can doubt that. Uh, but I don't think that the damage can be done. I, I, I mean, investigation should investigate. But not everything she wrote was wrong. Let's be very, very clear about that. But I think she was confused a lot about the, the doctrine of the atonement. She was confused definitely about the matter of the investigative judgment, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's some other things. I mean, for example, she, because she's the voice for the seven Adventists, she had uh, said the Lord had shown her that they should wear a special dress. One time it was two inches from the floor, next time it was nine inches from the floor. But every time the Lord had told her that. So, uh, and then there's a book I read by um, Ken Wright. Um, as ex Seventh Day Adventist, um, it is called um, Seventh Day Adventist um, Exposed. I think that's the title of it. Uh, he knew her personally; he had into contact with her, and uh, he saw her as virtually a um, a legalist dictator. Uh, anything that would happen, she would always hear something from the Lord to straighten out everybody, basically. And he made it very clear that her spirit was not, um, how should I put it? She was very, very legalistic in her spirit and uh, not a very pleasant person to be wrong, uh, as though she dictated what needed to be done. So, But I, I would not uh, be adverse to a person reading some of the literature, but read it with some measure of discernment. It's always useful before you criticize, at least to have some semblance of what you're reading. You just can't criticize without reading. So I, I, I don't see anything wrong with it unless, when you read it with a critical mind and allowing the Bible to guide you in your understanding of what she's written. For a Seventh-day Adventist reading it, is there ever a time that it's okay to put the writings or any writings on par with Scripture? Absolutely not. The Bible is the final authority. Uh, Do you have proof for that? Well, <laughs> when is proof of what? Uh, the, the Bible is the final authority. What would be your basis? Is that just something that we as uh, Christians uh, or as Baptists have said, oh, the Bible is the final authority. Uh-huh. We like it the way it is. Don't add anything to well, it. Well, that's another subject in itself to discuss the inspiration of the Bible. But uh, when you read Peter, uh, he says that holy men of God speak as they were moved by the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit. And that word move means to be carried along. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is the one that no, no Bible is, a, no, no scripture, any private interpretation. So nobody sat down and write the Bible. The Holy Spirit moved the person. Paul also said all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And the word there, uh, the Greek word is breathe out. That scripture is actually what God wanted us uh, to have. And then, of course, we go to the testimony of our Lord Jesus. Uh, he made it very, very clear that um, the Scriptures could not be broken, and that's the Old Testament. And then when he was leaving, he said he sent the Holy Spirit to bring all things to your remembrance, etc., etc. And I would challenge anybody to read Genesis 1 and read Revelations. What you have in Genesis 1 is complete in the book of Revelation. Revelation is the complete undoing of the sin that was started. You know, it's like the beginning of one book 
the front, the first page, uh, the first chapter, and then the final chapter. If you read those books together, you'll see that this is exactly what has happened. But there are other things beside that. Uh, we can you know, fulfill prophecy, uh, which there's no explanation that 800 years before, 500 years before, the Bible specified prophecy, and it comes to pass. Uh, those are just some very quick, basic concepts in connection with the final authority. We have a question that came in on Facebook Live. A listener asking you to clarify the views of baptism uh, of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Well, I, to my knowledge, I, I believe that they uh, uh, believe in immersion like we believe in immersion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't, in my investigation, found that they have deviated from that. Uh, I would have to get some clarity on that myself, but I haven't, uh, from what I've read, and I've read, uh, what, five books so far uh, along that line. I haven't seen anybody that brought to my attention that they were deviant. Yeah, their website I have right here, their website talks about immersion. It is by immersion in water and is contingent on affirmation. Of your faith. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That is similar to, to what we would do in the, the Baptist church, that we would, uh, when we're da- baptizing, when I'm baptizing a person, I know I was asking, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died and rose again the second and uh, third day for your sins? Have uh, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And upon your profession of faith, I know baptism in the, name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, basically. That's what we do. What about the fact of, do you believe that the Bible teaches that you need to be baptized multiple times? Absolutely not. Um, we believe in what is called <coughs> eternal security. Uh, we believe that a person who has put their faith and trust in Christ is justified. Uh, the Bible says you're justified, and to justify means to be declared righteous. Believe that a justified person is put in Christ, is moved out of the kingdom of darkness, put in the kingdom of light. Uh, that mystical union between the believer and Christ is one of the greatest certainties of his eternal security. That's why uh, Ephesians say that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. So the believers, and then of course Romans chapter 8 talks about nothing, absolutely nothing separate between the love of God and the believer. And then Paul says, there's now therefore no condemnation to them that in Christ Jesus. So we believe, and Jesus said uh, as well, he that believed me should never perish. No one never ever perish. So they, we believe in a believer who is truly saved, truly come to faith and trust in Christ, that he is eternally secure, and that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. But in the case that a believer who is truly saved, is baptized, falls away, uh, gets involved in sin, when they return to the Lord, when they return to the membership of the church, fellowship of the church, you're saying they don't have to be baptized, there's not a they don't have to check that off the list. It's more important that they are reconciled and they repent. Correct. Uh, after a person has been saved, baptized, um, get away from the Lord, he needs to return to the Lord, find forgiveness and pardon, but there's no need. Because what is baptism, basically? It's a symbol for the unsaved? Yeah, yeah. it's not only that, but uh, baptism is a public affirmation, affirmation that you've put yeah. your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's not something you need to repeat. I think only once in the Bible you find that a person was baptized twice. That's in, in the book of Acts. When Paul had met um, some people who had come under the influence of John the Baptist, and they had only known the baptism of John the Baptist. And then Paul met them, and they were not aware of the Christian baptism. They were not even aware that the Holy Spirit had come. And Paul, on that occasion, rebaptized them because they were now baptized in the name of Christ. Remember that John's baptism is not Christian baptism. 
John's baptism to baptism to repentance. When the person in John's day was indicating to the people around him that he had accepted John's message of righteousness and he was now being baptized to show he was repenting. That's not what it's about. We are identifying ourselves with Christ and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So the two are two different things altogether. Are you aware, was there any baptism before John the Baptist, or that was a completely foreign concept when John the Baptist no, came No, no, for my, for my understanding that the Jews practice different forms of baptism. Okay. Yeah, and not only that, the, the, uh, the mystical cults uh, during the New Testament days, uh, a lot of those cultic groups practice uh, uh, baptism as well. Sometimes they, their baptism was baptism in blood especially wow. the cultic movement. So baptism was a concept that's not something original in, in, uh, in terms of uh, the time of John. It was something that was known. You're listening to That's Truth. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 824. Do you have a question for Pastor Murphy? We would love for you to call and ask it. The phone number to be put live on the air is 1-268-462-7420. I'll give that to you again. one 268 462-7420. If you'd rather not call and be put live on the air, but you do have a question for Pastor Murphy, there are two other ways that you can send your question. The first one is you can WhatsApp or text your question to the following phone number, 268-782-1454-268-782-1454. Or if you are joining us on Facebook Live, thank you for taking time out of your busy evening to join us here on the program. And if you have a question, as has been done already this evening, you can just put it in the comments and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Pastor, anything else about Ellen G. White that you would like to add? Um, all I would would say that um, to suggest that she has the gift of revelation and she's virtually inspired uh, what her writings are virtually inspired although they say they don't put them on par with her I really think the the Seventh-day Adventists has put themselves in a, a bind by holding to her having the prophetic gift I do not believe that the prophetic gift is a gift that is currently functioning today because the Bible is complete we don't need prophets today. We need preachers, right? And uh, if you read the book of uh, Ephesians, it said that the church is built on the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. They laid the foundation. Now that the foundation laid, we don't need to build the foundation, right? We need to build the superstructure. The moment you open the door that you have a modern-day prophet that is like an Old Testament prophet, you have virtually created a Pandora's box of infinite possibilities. And by the way, that's why the Mormons claim that they got prophets and that Joseph Smith was a prophet, and he gave them the Book of Mormons. So there's a the moment you go out of that realm and you bring back this, this prophetic gift and you don't accept the fact that the Bible is totally complete, all that we need for life and godliness, it's God has given to us, Peter tells us that. We don't need to go outside Scripture and all the major cults have got some extra biblical uh, resource, whether it be the Moonies, who believe that Sun Yun Moon uh, is now fulfilling and giving revelation that Jesus didn't give, updated form, really, of God's revelation. So the moment you talk about the prophetic gift, there is no limitation to what is possible. 
and you're opening your do- the door now to um, allowing for extra biblical sources of, of material to be presented to the public as though they're divine, and that you take up, you take these the uh, the Mormons, uh, you take the JW, you even take Christian Science, you take the Moonies, you take any one of those. All of them are claimed. I mean, that this this particular gift is known. Catholics would be that way, right? With the Pope, isn't he? Yeah. Able well, to- he he is in line with um, Peter. He's in the the in the lineage of Peter. So that 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 gift is passed on from one to the okay. other, from one to the other. Um, but again, as you know, as as Protestants, as as Baptists, we do not believe in any infallible Pope. As a matter of fact, there's no such thing as infallible Pope. When we get a chance to discuss the Catholic Church, you'll see that one pope contradict the other. Now, if he's infallible, how can one one say this and then ex cathedra, speaking by authority as the vicar of Christ, and then the next one say the very opposite? So clearly, we are leading in a realm where it is just a fictional myth that there's such a thing as any uh, human um, infallible person on planet Earth today. The Bible is complete. We don't need anything beyond Scripture. Uh, the counsel that God gives, He'll give in Scripture, and uh, we don't need to go beyond Scripture. What about the size and the scope of the Seventh Day Adventist Church? Is it something really to be reckoned with? Well, my uh, investigation of the Seventh Day Adventist um, really is an amazing organization with very impressive assets and resources. And also, it has so many diverse ministries. It is shocking when it's and then clearly they have a, vo- a global vision, and they have a unified corporate um, headquarters where all resources are, are are pooled together, and they're able to do so much. Just to give you an idea, um, some of the stats worldwide, they got eighty six thousand five hundred seventy six churches worldwide. They own companies, 71,758 companies. I'm talking business companies now. I'm talking about in food and different stuff like that. So they, they're, it's not just church. Is they're that in, for income purposes? or? Well, I'm not too sure. Okay. It would seem to me it would have to be income. So, uh, their membership is over now 2.5 million, 20.5 million people uh, claim Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, they got close to 20,000 ordained ministers that are active they got a total of 305,000 employees. Um, uh, the amount of countries and areas in the world they're working in is about 213. Uh, their publications and oral work, uh, languages, over 100 different languages. Uh, they have uh, 62 conferences. They have um, 391 local conferences. They got um, all kinds of missions, but they're also into education. They got uh, 8,515 schools. They got 115 tertiary education um, uh, institutions. They have 50 uh, training institutions. They have 2,435 secondary schools. They got 5,915 primary schools. The total enrollment in their schools is 1.9 million. Uh, people training in all of the different schools. Um, and then they have 20 food industries. They're heavily involved in food industries. They also have 198 hospitals and sanitariums, 133 nursing homes and retirement centers. They've got 325 clinics and dispensaries 
and 21 orphanages. That gives you an idea. And 15 media centers, by the way. They are publishing houses, 59 of those. And uh, evangelists, full-time evangelists, interim evangelists, 25,000. Literature evangelists, uh, 6,000. And uh, so it's an amazing um, institution, a monolithic um, organization. And and uh, in addition to that, they've got the Voice of Prophecy, which is a program. It's on over 880 radio stations. And then they've got another program called Faith to the Day, another 183 radio stations. And their uh, publication, Signs of the Times, uh, over a million copies go per month. So they have, that's their equivalent of the Watchtower then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So you get an idea. This is a huge, huge, this is almost like a, a multinational incorporation, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have abundant resources. Uh, and that is why, for example, in St. Lucia, where I worked for uh, 10 years, they had 45 assemblies in St. Lucia alone. I don't know how many assemblies they have in Antigua. I know they have a lot in Barbados as well. But it's a, a real huge organization with almost limited resources uh, to do a lot of different projects. And uh, they're deeply involved in a lot of social work as well. I think here in Antigua, Peter Otley, you've got people come to your home, ask you to, to give something. They're going to try to repair somebody's home, somebody's house. So they involve a lot of social work. Uh, this is what makes them somewhat attractive uh, to some of the, the islanders, et cetera, et cetera. As far as the structure of the church, like the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that at their headquarters, the their council is the voice of God or is the the rev- ongoing revelation of God, correct? Yeah, that, that's what Do the believe, SDA yeah. have? No, SDA is completely different. Again, they don't think that any of their leaders in the group is, is the voice of God. The only authentic voice that they listen to is Ellen G. White. She is the prophet for the church with a special message to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And her counsel is virtually final when it comes to any matter of doctrine. What she says, settle the issue for them. And that's why it's hard to move away from this investigative judgment. In 1980, um, there was a guy, um, because the movement was almost rocked in 1980, There's a guy called uh, Desmond Ford who was trying to move the Adventist movement uh, away from the investigative judgment. And he was defrocked and expelled. What did he do? Well, he he was trying to prove to them that the investigative judgment and the sanctuary heavenly chat was false. Okay. And he was moving them away from that. But rather than take his counsel and examine the the scripture with him, uh, they just removed him. But in the 90, in 1980s, there was a lot of people who left the Adventist movement uh, over the same investigative judgment. Pastor, we have a phone call from Belmont, Antigua. Go ahead. Yeah, good evening to the host and Pastor Mercy and the listeners of Radio Lighthouse. Good evening. Pastor Mercy, I'm going to quit tonight because of the amount of credit I have on my phone, right? Okay. So what I'll do, once we continue the topic next week, I'll top up my phone and hopefully I'll be able to um, give a kind of a, a, a valuable contribution next week. Okay. I read twice of um two of Ellen G. White's book and um I refer to her as a dreamer. It's not a rudeness, but I refer to her as that, right? Yeah. Because when pers- when a person has the spirit of truth, right? The person will know when he hears the truth or when he reads the truth, right? Yeah. And I read the book entitled to uh entitled an Adventist book 
drama of the ages. Uh -huh. And I stopped reading that book when I read about um, the investigation. The investigation, right? Yeah. So I knew that was contrary to the scriptures. So I even have a, what the, um, the country, great controversy too. I stopped reading that too because when the spirit of truth has come and it's in the believer, yeah. the believer will know the truth when he hears the truth. This is what God told me, Pastor Murphy. This is right here. Uh -huh. A person cannot teach what they never learned. And a person cannot explain what they don't understand. Let me repeat that. God tell me this. A person cannot teach what they never learned, uh -huh. and they can't explain what they don't understand. And if a person is searching for something, and they don't know when they found what they're searching for, then the person doesn't know what they're searching for. But Pastor Mercy, uh, my mayor is calling tonight really to compliment and commend you for your fourth right tonight. As I, in my book, you're right under that. I'm not marking you, but if I was to mark you, I'll say you're under that 100%. Okay. So get a hundred out of a hundred. Thank so you. So what I'll do next week, I don't agree with everything you say every night, all the time, you know. I because, agree. I mean, last week, you said something that we may have talked about next week, concerning the hundred and forty-four thousand, because I think I heard you say that the hundred and forty-four thousand is, you know, evangelizing during the, um, the Great Tribulation, but, um, Pastor Murphy, we'll talk about that some of the time, because that's scriptural. Okay, man. hundred and forty-four thousand mentioned twice. Revelation chapter 7, yeah. Revelation chapter 14, it has nothing to do with them evangelizing or preaching the gospel. But we're not going to battle over that. Okay. What I'm going to do, I'm going to get your, fight, your number, your phone number, that we can talk to you when you have spare time and we can interact because I find you a good teacher. Okay. And I begin to listen on Sunday night and you will play on the station in the preaching. I encourage people to listen to you because I find that you're really a good preacher. Okay. I haven't found you anything out of what yet. But just see that little thing last week about 144,000. So we can discuss that some other time. Okay. Have a good night. I appreciate that. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Thank you for the call. And he is a good preacher. Uh, God's hand is clearly on him. And let me take this opportunity to encourage you, if you do not have a Bible-preaching church and you are living in Antigua, or even if you're just visiting in Antigua, we would love for you to visit Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace. The church is located on Rowan Henry Street. That's the street that the cemetery is located on. And Sunday school starts at 9 a.m. on Sundays. The morning service starts at 10 a.m., evening service on Sundays at 7 p.m., and on Thursdays at 7 p.m., there is prayer and Bible study on alternating Thursday evenings. Pastor Murphy, I uh, have a couple of questions that have come in uh, over the last couple of minutes. One WhatsApp message from Antigua says, A stance... In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which was endorsed by Mrs. White, was the idea of a last-generation theology, in which the believers of the last days would become sinless and live sinless lives before the immediate return of Christ. Is that biblical? It's not biblical, but I read as well that she, uh, in the Great Controversy, she said that Satan has charged God, the, the real country between God and, and Satan, really. He's charged God with unrighteousness because his law is not being kept. It's being broken. And um, she believes that in the end time that the Lord would vindicate himself by 144,000 righteous Seventh-day Adventists living and keeping the law before the Lord so that God will be vindicated. <laughs> so I guess it goes along with the same concept you have there. Um 
The Adventists believe that they have the final message for the final generation and that God has given to them peculiar doctrines that were lost by the church that they are now responsible uh, for giving to the world. But there's no biblical basis uh, for that. And uh, But every major cult, basically, the the, uh, the JW believe that they are the final voice for this final age. The Mormons? The Mormons, what you call the Latter-day Saints, that, that God has restored the true faith, and now they're responsible for getting the true faith, which is expressing the right of Joseph Smith to the world. You always got, this is one of the marks of a cult. That's why it's Adventism, while that um, Walter Martin and Henneker and um, Schuller and others didn't uh, didn't feel that they fall into the full category of, of the cult because they hold to the Orthodox Christian faith. Yet they do have some cultic inclinations. So one is this extra biblical source of authority, which is Ellen G. White, and then there are the peculiar remnant uh, group that has its final special message for the end times. Those are some of the classic marks of a, a cult, and that's why they have cultic leanings in that direction. But there's no basis for what um, they teach there. A second question from that same listener says, and also, can Jesus Christ be also Michael the Archangel in the human form as purported by Mrs. White and the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Well, let me just say... Uh, <laughs> This is where this is um, this is a peculiar how how they interpret um, the situation. They're not saying, uh, at least from their writings, uh, they are saying that um, Christ manifested himself uh, as Michael the Archangel before he came to Earth. Now, there's no basis for it. There's no biblical basis for that. As a matter of fact, uh, the, the one of the strongest arguments uh, against the fact to claim that. Um, Christ was Michael the Archangel, Michael the Archangel was Christ, is Jude chapter, uh, verse number 9. That's an interesting verse in Jude chapter 9, if I can just um, share it with you very quickly. But in Jude chapter 9, it talks about when there was a dispute over the the body of Satan, uh, over the body of Moses. And in Jude chapter, verse 9, sorry, it says, Yet Michael the Archangel, when he contended with the devil, uh, he disputed about the body. He durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, "The Lord rebuke thee." Now, here's the interesting thing. You see the word "durst not" there, uh, which means "dare not." The 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 Greek language is the word "talmeo," and that word always connotes fear. So, how in the world could Michael be the mark, uh, be Jesus Christ? And it is saying that he was fearful of rebuking the devil. Hmm. Impossible. Yeah. So, matter of fact, when he was on earth as a man, he rebuked the devil more than once. So, that verse in itself would tell you very clearly that that is a false interpretation. It's a misinterpretation. And uh, this is one of the areas where I said to you that they are cultic because, as you know, the, the Jehovah's Witness believed that Christ was Michael the Archangel, the first created being that God made, and that he became... Uh, when he came to earth, he became man, and then when he died on the cross, he went back and again was turned back into Michael the Archangel. And by the way, you remember when I talked about J.W. that they came out of the Adventist movement? Yeah. Exactly, because the, the idea of the annihilation, soul sleep, and the Michael doctrine, that's where uh, Russell got his teaching. It came out of the Adventist movement. And if you are listening and you want to make a note of that verse in your Bible, 
for future reference when talking with a Seventh-day Adventist. That is Jude chapter 1 and verse 9 that Pastor was just explaining. Pastor, we have one more question that came in. And this is from a five-year-old girl here in Antigua. And she asks, who made God? You've just asked the impossible question. <laughs> <laughs> the Bible doesn't tell us, doesn't show us. All the Bible declares to us in the beginning, God created the heaven. God always was. God was never created. If God was created, whoever created God would be God. So there has to be an ultimate absolute, and that's who God is. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's like if you had a mummy, and somebody made your mummy to be greater than your mummy. So whoever is the final person that makes anything would be God. And behind all of that, if you retrogress and go back and go back and go back, the being that was not created is God. And that's the God of the Bible. So we don't have to be able to explain everything from a human reason standpoint. There's some things that we take by faith because it's in God's Word. Uh, correct. Uh, and let me just say to the young girl as well, I can't ex- cannot explain electricity, but I enjoy it. <laughs> I, I Up till now, I've, I've studied it, I've looked at it, I've, I've read what they've said about it, but still, they don't seem to know exactly what it is. Uh, it's a funny thing, like the dark holes. I, I'm reading recently that... Um, that the dark holes are somehow material, but yet they're not material. There's a mystery about life, but the greatest mystery is God. But behind all that there is, there is uh, God, who is the first cause of everything that is there. Pastor, I know that we are wanting to talk about some of the peculiar doctrines, but is there anything that you want to say before we delve into the the doctrines of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and compare them to Scripture? All I would would like to say is that I don't have doubts that um, Adventists are sincere about what they they believe, but I think the real tragedy is giving so much weight to a, a lady, especially a lady. I repeat, uh, one cannot read the New Testament and especially the Book of Timothy, where it is made very very clear that a woman should not have authority over a man. And it's very, very, very clear that that uh, has nothing to do with the fact that she's female or that there's a cultural issue. It's because of the divine order in which God created. God created in order that the man would be the head and to be the leading. To have a woman leading a movement like this that is so large and, and to be so dependent on a woman clearly is totally unscriptural. So I have a problem um, with the fact that uh, they have given such weight to a woman as the final authoritative voice. Is that not a chauvinistic thought, though, Pastor? It is only chauvinistic if you think that it is not a biblical base for it. Okay. But if there's a biblical base for it, it cannot be chauvinistic because it's not a matter of I saying that I said that. It's what God says. A woman should not have authority over man uh, in in relation to these matters. She's not supposed to be the one that that, um, is the final authority on doctrine. And again, there are two biblical grounds given for that. Number one, God has chosen, divinely chosen, that man be the leader within the church and within the house. And secondly, uh, the fact that she was the one that fell first and was deceived. Uh, That has brought her onto the point where she's not given that authority. So this is not rooted in culture. This is rooted in, in, in biblical history. 
What are some of the peculiar doctrines that you would say the SDA Church holds to that go contrary to the teachings and the principles found in Scripture? Well, one of those uh, that come immediately to mind is the fact that man doesn't have a soul. Okay. And that the soul um, cannot exist uh, the, without the body. That the coming together of the, the, the breath and the body creates a soul. So it's not that there's any part in man called the soul. The body plus the immaterial part is the soul itself, but they're not separate. Uh, I think that that is a problem, biblically. Is that the basis, then, for soul sleep? Yes, okay. exactly. exactly. The, because here's the argument, now. If uh, Christ moved from, in 19, uh, 1844, from the holy place into the Holy of Holies, and he's doing the investigative work, that means that there's nobody in heaven. Nobody's in heaven. So now, if nobody's in heaven, where are they? Soul sleep. See, one, one doctrine has led to the other. Because you cannot be teaching that there are Christians, uh, the, the believer spirit already in heaven, and he's now interceding, he's now checking to find out who gets to heaven. So one doctrine leads to the other, see? Again, it goes back to the investigative uh, judgment. If Ellen G. White did not go into uh, be transported to heaven where she saw in the, the mercy seat in there when it was taken off, if she didn't see the Ten Commandments with the hail or wrong, the Fourth Commandment, there'd be no authoritative basis for the, uh, the, the keeping of the Sabbath as far as the seven days. But her voice is final because she, is the, she has the spirit of prophecy. See? But again, if there's no investigative judgment, what happens? There's no Sabbath. What happens? Believers are in heaven, spiritual in heaven, sponsored absolutely present with the Lord. But if there's investigative judgment, he's not investigating to decide who gets to heaven and who will be annihilated. Well, we can't put anybody in heaven, otherwise it contradicts our doctrine. That is where I think the problem lies. But again, when you go to Scripture, um, I don't think that a person who studies Scripture in this regard um, would have any doubt that there is a separate part of man, an immaterial part of man that is there. Yeah. WhatsApp question that just came in from Casada Gardens, Antigua. Thank you to the listener who sent it in. Why is it that there will be no hell, and where did that belief come from? Again, I should have said this in my introduction when I was dealing with Ellen G. White. Um, one of the things that troubled her when she was in the Methodist Church is the doctrine of hell. It's kind of like Russell. Just like Russell, Russell wanted, uh, it bothered her greatly uh, about this doctrine of hell. Uh, and that is where, when she joined the Adventist movement and became part of the Adventist movement and she had these revelations, uh, she realized that uh, the Lord told her there's no hell, uh, there's no eternal hell, that people be annihilated, and that became part of the doctrine of the the, the Adventist movement. So it is, it is not scriptural, madam. Uh, it's nowhere in the Bible that teaches that doctrine. Uh, as a matter of fact, if we don't get through tonight, we might do a, um, a section of scriptures dealing with if there's a hell or not, and we could show from the Bible where the Bible explicitly says to us that there's a hell. As a matter of fact, uh, it is so clear in the Bible that I wonder how anybody can read the Bible and come to the conclusion that people are going to be annihilated. Uh, it talks in the book of Revelation that the beast and the false prophet and, the, and Satan will be tormented unto the ages of the ages, and they have no rest, neither night nor day. Uh, I mean, how do you interpret that? 
right? Yeah. And then our Lord himself uh, removed the window, gave us a window into what happens in Hades uh, when the rich man died. Now, he's teaching something. He's teaching that at death, two, there are two different places. The man that knows God goes to one place. The man that knows God doesn't go, go to another place. The man that goes to God is comforted. The man that doesn't know God, he's tormented. I mean, if that teaches anything at all, is that there is torment after a person dies outside of Jesus Christ. I don't think anybody can read that. What do you call it? The parable or whatever you, you call it. The teaching is there. The substance is there. A parable teaches something. And it is teaching comfort in one case and torment in the other. But there are a lot of other bases that we can use. But, madam, there's no, um, there's no biblical basis whatsoever for anybody to suggest that a person will be annihilated and there's no such thing as eternal punishment. The Bible teaches that expressly in many, many portions of Scripture. As a matter of fact, the greatest hell preacher was Jesus himself. He spoke more about hell than he ever spoke about love and all the other um, uh, attributes that we may talk about God. But he emphasized again and again that there was a place to fear, there was wrath to come, and men need to escape it. And that's why he paid the ultimate penalty. That wouldn't be politically correct today, and I'm sure it wasn't politically correct then, but Jesus Christ said it, the Bible says it, and that makes it true. You're listening to That's Truth. We have about five and a half minutes left in the program. If you have a question, there is still time to get it to Pastor Murphy. One of two ways that you can do that, one of three ways, you can either comment on Facebook Live and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy, or you can call one 462 7420 and ask your question live on the air, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268 268- 7821454 Yeah, let me just say something about this uh, having not a spirit. Part of the reason for them teaching this that it's not a a spirit or a soul a, or Yeah, right. The immaterial part of okay. that basically. Uh, they use uh, the book of Ecclesiastes a lot to try to prove their point because there are passages in, in Ecclesiastes unless you interpret them correctly, you can come to a false conclusion. You got to understand where uh, uh the writer of Ecclesiastes, what, what angle he's coming from, what is he teaching? He's really looking at life under the sun. Mm-hmm. He's looking at it from a man who is going to appear to pessimism, pessimism, and he's searching for meaning of a purpose. So a lot of what he says is just a man who has gone into a phase of skepticism. He's lost his faith. He's now going to regain his faith in the end of the chapter because he tries everything. He tries pleasure. He tries money. He tries um, architectural buildings. He tries getting as much gold as silver. Education. He tries a whole list of things. But the, uh, I want to just point out to the um, to those who may be listening. For example, in Acts 7, verse 59, Stephen committed his spirit to the Lord. Now, does it make sense to say he committed his breath to the Lord? Absolutely not. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, Father, into my hand, I do want to commit my spirit. Even in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, verse 7, uh, it says that when a man dies, his spirit goes back to be with the Lord. Uh, uh, Luke chapter 6, 26. um, When our Lord was dying with the thief on the cross, he said what? Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So, I mean, how can you explain those kind of verses? Uh, And then take in Matthew chapter 17, when our Lord is discussing his his, his death, his demise, uh, his departure with um, 
Moses and Elijah. I mean, if you are annihilated and you are soul sleep until the Lord returns, how can Moses and Elijah are having a conversation in this matter? And then um, in book of 1 Samuel chapter 28, when the Lord intervened, because you remember Saul went to the witch of Endor. And I know some people don't believe that Samuel, but the Bible says Samuel came up. There's a yeah. clear language he came up. And the woman was shocked that Samuel came up. But clearly, God allowed Samuel to come to speak to Saul and give a final message. And then, of course, Corinthians chapter 5 says, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the body, look, the problem with the Adventists is that the, when the Bible compares the uh, death to sleep, it's the body that sleeps, not the soul that sleeps. But they take everything and they, they don't understand it. Every time the Bible talks the, the, that death is asleep, it's the body that sleeps, but the spirit goes to be with the Lord. Yes. We have a caller from Nevis. Go ahead. Yes, good evening. Good, good evening. evening. Quickly with your question, please. Yes, just a question about a verse in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. Jesus said in his sermon on the mount, the blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is your take on that? Well, that, that is true. That's going to happen. During the millennial kingdom, uh, definitely when we rule with Christ, we will inherit the earth. There's no question about that. That's part of the millennial kingdom that is promised uh, in the book of Revelations. Thank you very much. Was that your question? Yes. All right. Thank you very much for that question, Pastor uh, a follow-up question in relation to the question from the five-year-old girl earlier. Can you explain, maybe in a little simpler terms, is the, the follow-up question of where God came from or who made God? No, nobody made God. God came from eternity. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, God created time. Uh, and everything that is created is created by God. By the way, uh, the scientists are completely bamboozled that the universe is so large they cannot explain this universe. Remember that our galaxy, the Milky Way, um, has billions of stars, but they're billions of galaxies, and they can't fathom that. The, 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 the universe is so large that the more they discover, it is staggering. This thing just couldn't happen, and it's so fine-tuned. Everything has to be in balance, just like the earth has to be in balance to get the water, to, 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 et cetera, et cetera, so that we can uh, get rain, et cetera, et cetera. God always will, was, always will be, and uh, he is the eternal one. He is the one that creates everything. Everything depends upon him, and he is the one that loved us so much to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for us. And uh, he wants us to share his glory with him. And all we need to do is to repent, put our faith and trust in Christ, and we will have eternal life and live eternally with him. Will God ever have an end? Absolutely not. If, uh, <laughs> there's no end. He said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He said, I am the great I am. I am that I am. I am the eternal self-existent one. None before me, none after me. I am who I am, basically. That is a stupendous God that we serve and the one that we worship. Coming up next week, we'll continue this topic of the Seventh-day Adventists. We'll cover in more detail some of their uh, errant doctrines, uh, peculiar doctrines, and use Scripture to back them up. And then the next cult or new religion that we will be discussing following the Seventh-day Adventist church is the Mormon church. And so we will probably 
get along the lines of the Mormon Church next week. Again, thank you for joining us on That's Truth, and I hope that you will join us again next week here on That's Truth. Keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.